God of Israel, you bring forth new life. A branch growing out of the stump that is your captive people. Bring forth life in us today and give us grace to bear fruit that demonstrates we have changed hearts and minds, that we might be prepared for the day when you come to judge the living and the dead. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. This morning we get to talk about the two trees and the man standing in between the trees. But before we do, let's just clear up the air a little bit. Rudolph, where are you? On behalf of the United States of America, I want to say congratulations to you and all Dutch people everywhere as you move on in the tournament, and then to all you Georgia fans, on behalf of the state of Louisiana, I want to say, <laughs> congratulations. You are indeed the worthy champions of the Southeastern Conference, and on behalf of Louisiana and the, indeed the entire Southeastern Conference, I <laughs> congratulate you, and I'm cheering for you as you move forward. The sermon today is about a tree cut down and how God brings life out of death. And I don't know how that all applies, but I wrote the sermon before last night. So at least most of it before the adapted part. All right. The collects that we pray during Advent are just so beautiful and they're just so dialed in and they just tell us what it's all about. And if you don't have a copy of, of the Book of Common Prayer at home, I encourage you to get a copy. You can go home and read those collects that we pray here every Sunday, um, especially good thing to do this time of year. And I want to just look at the collect that we prayed one more time because it's so instructive for knowing what the day is about. Merciful God, who sent your messengers, the prophets, to preach repentance and prepare the way for our salvation. Give us grace to heed their warnings and forsake our sins, that we may greet with joy the coming of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. So we have a goal in mind. What is the goal? We want to, with joy, be able to greet Jesus when he comes. Like, that's the end goal of Advent. It's a joyful picture. That's what we want, right? Christ is coming back, and I want to be happy to see him. I want to have a smile on my face. I want, to, I want to greet him with a smile. And so what is needed? Well, I need to then prepare by heeding the warnings of the prophets and forsaking my sins. So that's kind of how Advent works. It's how this day works. We go back and we look at the prophets and we look at John, who Jesus says is the first among prophets, the greatest prophet that God ever sent. And we go back and we receive their warnings as we prepare to meet our Lord, and we want to meet him with, with joy. Today, we, we have two texts, one in the old and one in the new, and they're both about trees. And I want to talk to you about those trees. On one side, in Isaiah, we have a tree that has been chopped down. 
And Isaiah 1.11 says, A shoot shall come from the stump of Jesse, a branch shall grow out of its roots. And then over here on the other side in Matthew, Matthew chapter 3, there's a tree as well. And this is what John says in that text. Even now, the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So here we have a tree that's already been cut down. And over here, we have a tree not yet cut down. Over here, we have something that is thought to be dead, and yet something is coming out of it, right? There is life coming out of something that's dead. And over here, there's something that is supposed to be alive, and yet is not producing fruit. What's at the roots? Well, here at the roots, we have a branch that is growing up out of it, right? And over here at the roots, we have an X. The Messiah is about to come on the scene with an ax ready to chop some trees down. Over here, we have a stump that is about to become a tree. And over here, we have a tree that is about to become a stump. We sang that hymn this morning, which in German is entitled, Es ist ein Rose in Sprungen. Lo, how a rose ever blooming from tender stem have sprung. Of Jesse's lineage coming, as men of old have sung, it came a flower bright amid the cold of winter bright. Now, I had to explain to people in California that roses don't grow in winter in places like Germany. Because there, they actually grow all year round, right? That's why they have the Rose Bowl. They were trying to seduce people from the Midwest to move to California. Look, we have roses in January. Don't you want to just stay here by a house? And it worked. <laughs> but in places like where this song is written, it's impossible for a rose to come up in the middle of winter. And that is the image we have here in Isaiah. Israel is in an impossible situation. It literally has no future. Trees, and especially olive trees in the scriptures, are a metaphor for Israel. And God ended up having to chop down this tree we know as Israel, and he sent her into exile as a punishment for failing to live into its calling. And Israel had this calling to be God's special people, to live as a holy people, separate, set apart for God's purposes in the world. They were supposed to love each other. They were supposed to do justice together. They were supposed to make sure everyone's needs were provided for. They were supposed to put their trust in God alone and not get their hopes in the nations around them. They were supposed to actually be a demonstration of God's goodness and beauty and truth for the nations. Literally, they were supposed to live as God's holy people, and God's plan was to draw the nations in so that they could demonstrate to the people of the earth what God was like and what his holy ways were like. And yet at this moment, Israel is no more, has been completely cut down, never to produce fruit, Again, and yet Isaiah tells us, out of this seemingly dead stump, 
new life is going to spring up. What does Isaiah tell us about this branch? Well, the first thing we hear about the branch is that the spirit of the Lord is going to rest upon him. And you can read about that spirit, how it's a spirit of wisdom and counsel and might. And what I'm reminded about is that everything that the Messiah is going to do is going to be done in the power of the spirit. We have a preview of the Trinity we have a preview of how this works, going, going all the way back to the prophet Isaiah. A Messiah is going to come and it's going to be full, full of the Spirit. And it's going to demonstrate for us the Spirit-filled life. Our, our uh, Matthew reading gets, uh, cuts off where it has to cut off. But if we were to read just a few more verses later, we'll see how Jesus goes on to get baptized by John. And how the Spirit descends on him and how he goes out in the power of the Spirit. The second thing we read in Isaiah about him, about this branch, this Messiah, is that he will rule rightly and establish God's justice on earth. And if you study the text, you'll see that he has an uncanny sense to judge the unseen. It's not going to be what the eye see or what it hears. The Messiah is just going to know the heart. And some of us are rightly skeptical of leaders and we want to check people's power because we know that people have limited ability to judge rightly, right? Because we ourselves are people who sometimes don't make the right judgment, right? Even with our own kids or our own coworkers at work, right? Sometimes we think we have it right and we think we know who did what and then we find out oh, we were wrong. And we can rejoice in the good news that God's going to send a Messiah that can judge the heart's of, of people. And he's going to do right by the poor. He with righteousness shall judge the poor. It's the poor, those who don't have power, for whom the judicial system and the welfare system breaks down. And thirdly, we see that this Messiah is going to establish a kingdom of peace. And we had some beautiful imagery, didn't we? of the wolf and the lamb lying together in harmony, the leopard and the baby goat, the calf and the lion and the child tending to them. The picture that always gets me is the, is the weaned child putting the hand down in the adder's den. I feel like ever since I've become a parent, I'm always just super nervous that my kids are going to run out into the street and get hit by a car. And so I feel like my anxiety level is like at, you know, 11 on a scale of 1 to 10 half the time when I'm with them, you know, going through the Lowe's parking lot to try and get a Christmas tree, just hoping that one of them don't die, right, on the way to, to get the Christmas tree so that we can have a great Christmas, right? Probably if Isaiah were writing this for me, would just flip out added for cars. It's going to be a world without cars. We won't even need them. It'll be a great subway system to take us everywhere we need to go. But it's a world without fear, isn't it? It's a world without violence. It's a world where we're not trying to devour one another. No more fear of mass shootings or nuclear threats. We live in a world dominated by fear and death, but this world will be dominated by peace and life. We have some amazing poetic imagery uh, in this text, and it's inspired the kind of art that we see now 
on the wall. Anybody know this painting? The Peaceable Kingdom by a, a Quaker pastor named Edward Hicks. This guy's a famous painter, so these paintings are in the Met and they're in the Smithsonian. But actually of the Peaceable Kingdom, we know that he has painted at least 62 versions of them. He used to give them not on commission, but as, as gifts to friends. We can ask ourselves, what, what would this do to us to meditate on this vision in Isaiah if we had painted it 62 times? How might this beautiful act of worship shape your heart and mind to meditate on such things for so long? I'll show you one more just because I've got to represent L.A. Uh, one of my favorite artists, John August Swanson, who is a, can you go on to, to these, this is, show you two versions and then uh, you can somewhat see it. We're praying for stronger projectors in the life and the world to come. Um, hopefully, hopefully, 5522 New Peachtree, folks, is coming. All right. Uh, but this is John August Swanson's version of the Peaceable Kingdom, and he's really amazing, and I love him. The picture Isaiah paints is one of life from death. It's a picture of resurrection. It's a world ruled by a spirit-filled Messiah King who establishes justice and peace. And the root of Jesse is a signal to all the peoples and all the nations of the earth come seeking him. That's the first tree. And then, of course, the second tree is a vision of Israel as John is coming onto the scene Let's talk about John for a second, the man standing between the trees. I want to interrupt this sermon with our annual John's Christmas Catechism. It's a game show. Do you guys remember how to play this? I taught you last year. I know a lot of you forgot. This is, this is how the game show works. You guys ready? You got to cue up the, the catechism. There you go. Get you in the mood. This is how it works. We play for points. You play, you play with the person next to you, and whoever gets the most points wins. You ready? It's a question and answer kind of thing. I ask the question, and then you just yell out your best answer. You ready? First question. It's an easy one. What is Christmas? They're all trick questions to you, by the way. <laughs> Not all of them. It's the season that commemorates the birth of our Lord and Savior. Christmas isn't just a day, right? Christmas is an entire season, when does the Christmas season begin? December 25th. December 25th. We might receive that. I'm going to go with, it begins with the Feast of the Nativity, which actually begins the evening of December 24th, right? That is when it begins. When does Advent begin? Very good. Four Sundays before the Feast of the Nativity. Somebody's racking up some points over there. Good job. Hope, hopefully you're doing well. What is the color of Advent? Purple. Very good. It's purple because purple represents repentance. Why are we repenting? We're sinners. Yes, very good. <laughs> We're repenting to prepare for the coming of our Lord. This word Advent comes from the Latin Adventus Domini. The coming of our Lord. Is there any other color used during Advent? 
Rose, thank you. I was looking for that. We have the rose-colored candle. I don't wear pink vestments, guys. I wear rose-colored vestments. <laughs> what does the color rose represent? Joy. Very good. You guys are way better at this than last year. I feel like you guys have been practicing. Very good. Rose represents joy. The third Sunday of Advent we call Gaudete Sunday. And it was on this day that the priest walked into the sanctuary for centuries chanting, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. The Lord is near. We're rejoicing that our Lord is coming soon. All right. We always have a break from the game to show our annual Advent meme, which is the same one we always use. We will celebrate the 12 days of Christmas after the four weeks of Advent, okay? Well, what you know is we're not Christmas Nazis. We love Christmas. We invented Christmas. The church invented this holiday, folks. And the church just wants you to know how we think you should celebrate our holiday, okay? We love it. And so we love it so much, we need four weeks to prepare for it. So for four weeks, we prepare. We read all these things about the prophets. We listen to John. We get ready for judgment, all those things. And then finally, when the 24th rolls, rolls around, we're good to go. For 12 hardcore days of like just all out Christmas, like, you know, the whole thing, Frank Sinatra, all that stuff, just blaring the whole time. Um, all the good play. Which, what do you guys like? I don't know. I got Johnny Mathis in there. I got Bing. Which ones? Okay. All right. How many Gospels do we have in the Bible? Let's continue the game show, guys. Get back to the serious show here. Four. Very good. That was an easy one. How many of the Gospels include a birth narrative? Say it quick or I don't trust you. Okay. Two. Only Matthew and Luke mention details about Jesus' birth. John's Gospel only speaks about him coming into the world, but we don't get any specifics about Mary or Joseph or anything like that in that part. And then in Mark's gospel, he just doesn't even care about the childhood at all. He's just like, we're just going to get right into this thing. We don't have time for that. How many of the gospels talk about the ministry of John the Baptist? Four. This is almost not fun because you guys are getting so good at it now. (laughs) Friends, it turns out that you can tell the story of Jesus without telling the story of Jesus' birth. But you can't tell the story of Jesus without telling the story of Jesus' cousin. We have to know the story of the one who came to prepare the way for him. And if we've forgotten how important it is, the Gospels are there to remind us that all four of them want us to stop and think for a moment about this person we call John the Baptist. The Eastern Church calls him John the forerunner, and that's a good name for him because he is the forerunner. Most importantly, he's the one who came to prepare the way. Jesus had a forerunner, and we, like the people in the gospel story, are not prepared to meet him until we have met the forerunner. You might say we have gospels without Christmas, but we don't have any gospels without Advent. John is the man standing between the trees. Who is John? Well, we've already said he's the cousin of Christ, which is a great way of remembering the importance of the incarnation, right? Like if I don't think about Jesus' 
cousin, John here, and I forget about his mother, Mary, I can forget just how human Jesus really was, how fully he took on my story, how fully he took on my flesh, right? Some of us uh, can get caught up in worshiping a Jesus that isn't fully human, and remembering that Jesus had cousins like we did and learning their stories reminds us of who Jesus really was. And so this cousin part is really important. There's another image that John is supposed to evoke with his crazy camel hair and the belt uh, around his waist. He's there to evoke this image of Elijah. And if you go back and read about the prophet Elijah, he was a hairy man. Um, And he had a leather belt around his waist. And Malachi 4, 5 through 6 says this. It's talking about the last day. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. And it was because of this prophesy in Malachi that people in Jesus' day were looking for an Elijah-type figure to step on the scene before the Messiah came. And what the Gospels are trying to show us is that John is indeed this person that has come to prepare us for the last days. And so John shows up on the scene saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Like Bob Dylan, he's singing, for the times are a-changing. The time is now. The branch is emerging from the root, and the Messiah is about to step on the scene. And John's ministry is actually the most powerful ministry that anyone had ever seen for a really long time. And so he says something that's actually very hard for them to believe that he is actually even more powerful than I am. And the axe is in his hand. And for every tree that does not bear fruit, he is ready to cut it down. What kind of fruit is it that the Messiah might be looking for when he comes? Well, Matthew doesn't spell it out right here in his gospel. We know from Luke's gospel that when people... Come, come up and ask John explicitly, okay, what exactly must we do? He starts getting into it with him, right? He's like, well, if you have two cloaks, you should go ahead and give one of your cloaks to someone that doesn't have one. And then some other folks say, well, what should we do? Okay, you know, you need to uh, stop defrauding the poor, right? And you need to stop overcharging. And so he gets into it with the tax collectors and the soldiers. But really, we know from reading the story in Isaiah about the root of Jesse, the kind of fruit that the Messiah would be looking for. Equity for the poor and the meek, fruit of justice and fair business dealings. That image of peace for calves and lambs and small children, it's doing the kind of things that bring about a world without violence where people don't devour one another. And so John comes on the scene saying that we need to bear fruit and that we need to get ready because the Messiah is coming in judgment. And we don't really want Advent to be about judgment because, well, we don't like judgment. (laughs) I know some of you really like baby Jesus. And like Rick, Ricky Bobby and Talladega Nights, maybe you offer prayers to baby Jesus. And I want you to know that at Church of the Incarnation, 
we absolutely love baby Jesus. In fact, right now, we are looking for an image of, of the Virgin Mother holding uh, baby Jesus to go um, into our, our new space because it is one of the most profound images of incarnation that we have, right? And so I just want to let you know that we love baby Jesus. But I can imagine that some of us would love for Advent to be kind of like a four-week preview of baby Jesus, right? It's almost like the baby shower and the gender reveal and all that stuff. We just kind of relive that in Advent. And some of us intuitively think about it that way. And that's really cool. I'd be down for that. I, I love a good baby shower, you know, as long as the food is on point. But instead, the church tells us that Advent is actually about something else. The church invites us to reflect on death, judgment, heaven, and hell. In that exact order, actually. But we would rather not think about judgment. And some of us for good reasons, right? Some of us have been the victims of judgmental people, maybe even judge, judgmental institutions. Maybe you've been a part of something where you felt judged I know maybe some of us used to think about kind of like Christian conservative fundamentalist churches as a place where there's lots of uh, judgmental people. But I feel like as we go further in time, we realize that those aren't the only places where the judgmental people are, right? And for some of us, our, our, our really awesome uh, secular friends on the more liberal side we're finding out are just as, as judgmental as, as some of those church folks were. I've got a friend who's a little older and wiser than me, and he, he's worried that, that there's not going to be more people in therapy for the second group rather than the, the first. We can find judgmental folks everywhere we look. And I get it. And I just want you to know that as a church, we're not trying to be the kind of place where you walk out of here feeling beat up. The other side of it is that the topic of judgment is absolutely unavoidable for those who want to follow Jesus. In fact, every day in the creed, every Sunday we gather, what do we say? He will come again to judge the living and the dead, right? We're always reminding ourselves that that thing is going to happen. And here's what we need to know. Judgment is a thing because your life matters to God. Someone put it this way. If God does not care about what I do, I will begin to suspect that God does not actually care about me. And if God loves me enough to welcome me into Christ's family, then God loves me enough to expect something from me. One pastor told a story about a family um, going to pick their little boy up from elementary and that little boy had prepared the Christmas present, the surprise, right? Present that, that all the kids had been working on for their family. It was some little ceramic, right, that they had painted. Probably something was going to go on the tree. And as the boy excitedly brought it out to his parents, it fell on the ground. It fell into pieces. And then that little boy began to sob uncontrollably. To which the dad began to say, oh, don't worry. It, it doesn't matter at all. It doesn't, it doesn't even matter. And then the much wiser mom jumped in and said, oh, no, it matters a great deal. It really matters. And then she begins to weep with him. 
And friends, I want you to know that your life matters to God. Human life matters to the author of life. Judgment isn't the absence of God's love. Judgment is God's love put into action. On one tree, we have a stump, and the Messiah is at the root, and he is the living branch that will emerge and establish an everlasting kingdom of peace and justice. And on the other tree, the Messiah is standing at the root, but this time with an axe, checking it one more time for the fruit that God expects from his people. He is looking for love and kinship, mutual responsibility, justice, peace, and tender care for the most vulnerable. I wonder how the two stories of these intersecting trees intersect with the stories that are in your life. How do the story of these two trees intersect with the intersecting stories of your life? What happens in your soul as you stare at this tree and as you stare at that one? How does it feel when the eyes of John are peering into your soul, God's mouthpiece, warning you that you might not just be as ready for God's justice as you thought you were? The first tree, the stump, it reminds us that God brings life out of death and that he turns the end into the beginning What seems over in your life? Where is their death? What has already been cut down? Maybe it's a relationship or a career, something in your personal development. Maybe it's your spiritual life. I have friends in all sorts of places some in happy places, others facing divorce or loss of a family member or the loss of family life as they had known it. And in each case, the end is very real. And I want you to know that the image of the stump is not a call to optimism, but rather it's something that is radically different that we call hope. It's a call to trust in God's apocalyptic plan to set all things right through his Messiah, knowing that he's already begun the process of healing the world because the power of the resurrection has already leaked out until this present age. Where in your life do you need the God who turns real endings into real beginnings. Where in your life do you need to be reminded that the entire story of the Bible is about a God who makes a way where there seems to be no way? 
And then, of course, we have the image of the second tree, the fruitless failure. And there, God is reminding us that God has children, but he has no grandchildren. Right? The Pharisees are coming, and John is telling them, don't think that you have Abraham for your father, and don't claim that. God is inviting us into a faith of our own. And some of us might want to claim our family heritage, or maybe we think we belong to the right church, or we have the right name, the right, uh, the right adjective in front of our religious group. And belonging to the right family or the right church isn't enough. Because when the Messiah comes, the Messiah will be looking for fruit. And we can say, wait, isn't this about faith? And it's, yes, it's absolutely about faith. And I think what John would say to us and what Jesus would say is that authentic faith brings about authentic fruit. The Messiah wants to see fruit. And so we can ask ourselves the question, have I put my faith in Christ in a way that actually matters? Like, does it make a difference for my life? Is there anything that changes in my life because of my faith? Does it matter to God and does it matter to the people around me? I wonder what kind of tree that is your life. I wonder what kind of fruit it is that you are producing. How is your life giving life to others according to God's good intentions? Staring at the two stumps, we can ask God, are there any parts in my life that appear dead where you are wanting to bring forth new life? And then we could also ask, are there any parts of my life that are fruitless that you are wanting to bring judgment and cut them away? And when we ask both of these questions open-handedly, Together, at the same time, we come to a point of surrender where we just say, God, whatever it is you have for me, I trust you. I trust the plan of your Messiah. And so I can even pray a prayer of faith and trust of God, judge me. God, if there's things you need to cut down in me and out of me, however hard it is, however bad it is, I trust that you are good and that you were loving, and that you were faithful. I trust the plan and the work of the Messiah. Because I know that the same God that can chop a tree down is the same God that can bring life from a tree that has been chopped down. Amen.